having someone step up and step into a situation in order to intercede for you, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? To have someone step up and step into a situation on your behalf is a wonderful thing. Do you know that from personal experience? Maybe you can think of a situation even now of someone doing that for you. Maybe you were in a hard place and someone said to you, hey, let me make a call. And that made all the difference. Maybe a higher up at a job you were at gave you a recommendation that changed the game. Maybe a teacher went to bat for you. Maybe in the midst of family turmoil, someone stepped in to plead your case. Whatever the situation was, whatever the situation might be coming up, if you've experienced intercession, you remember it. You're grateful for it. This morning, I want us to look together at God's Word at an incredibly memorable example of intercession. And we find that account in Exodus chapter 32. If you're not there already, many of you are. If you're not there, get over to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to drop down and start by looking at just the first part of verse 11. Take a look at Exodus 32 verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord. We know capital L-O-R-D is a way that we talk about. It's a way that the English Bible translation has chosen to render the divine name. Four letters. That's why it's called the Tetragrammaton. And we believe the best pronunciation of that is Yahweh. So this is the name given by God, even from the burning bush to Moses, a covenant name of God. But Moses implored Yahweh, his God, and said, Oh, Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Now, stop right there. That's a great question for us to begin with. It's a great question for us in terms of filling out the context here because it makes us ask these questions. Why is God angry? Why is Moses seeking God's favor? Why is he entreating God? Why is he pleading with God here? Well, Yahweh, the God of Israel, just explained this to Moses in verses 7 and 8. Just look back up to verses 7 and 8 of Exodus 32. This is what God said. Your people, Moses, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, they've corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is what the people said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Talk about a disturbing and despicable turn of events here in this story. God had worked his amazing wonders and he had brought the mighty kingdom of Egypt to its knees. And that was only a matter of weeks ago, seven, eight weeks ago before this. And he did all of this, these miracles, these wonders. He did this 
in order to liberate the Israelites. He did this to make their freedom possible. They escaped because of his intervention. He did this for the Israelites who were the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But this powerful and decisive deliverance that we've read about and we've studied and the covenant commitment of the people of God, commitment to him and to his laws. We didn't read that, but it's depicted in chapters 19 and 20. This commitment, this decisive deliverance, deliverance by God has somehow here been discarded like litter on the side of the road. It's all been tossed to the side by the people. Now the people are worshiping gods, plural. And they're practicing idolatry. Well, guess what? They're just going through the commandments, it seems like, one at a time. They got the first two covered here. Boom, boom, boom. Knock them over. Transgress them. Violate them. That's the first two commandments, isn't it? Of the Ten Commandments given in chapter 20. So it's no wonder in light of everything that God did for them, in light of his decisive victory over Egypt, in light of what he's revealed, in light of his goodness to them, in light of his provision to them, in light of all that they should be grateful for and thankful for, it's no wonder that his wrath is burning hot against this people. In fact, according to verse 10, God's plan is to consume them. All of them, except Moses. This is why Moses is interceding. This is why he is interceding. Now, spoiler alert, if you drop down to verse 14, you will find the results of Moses' intercession, his pleas before God. It says, And Yahweh relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That's the end result of Moses' intercession. But before we go any further into our main text, I think we need to tackle this issue of what is really happening here. And here's what I mean. What's really happening here? In this episode, and there's a similar episode to this, if you want to make a note of it, in Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. That's the time where they're going into the land, or the spies come back from the land and give them a bad report. All except two of the guys, Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else has a bad report and the people begin to grumble and complain. We find a very similar situation. Moses going to bat. He's interceding for the people in Numbers 14. So in this episode here in Exodus 32, an unfamiliar reader who walks right into this story, who reads this story, they may walk out of this story. They may walk away thinking Moses is like some kind of God wrangler. He's like a God whisperer, isn't he, Moses? Because God is dangerously volatile. God is capricious. He's a divine hothead who needs to be talked down by someone, right? So he doesn't lose his cool and do something he'll regret. Someone could walk away thinking that. But is that really what's happening here? 
Frankly, that interpretation insults the intelligence, really, of anyone who, like us, has been reading about this God from Genesis chapter 1, from the very beginning of the Old Testament. If you've been doing that, then you know that this God is not a disturbed deity who needs some kind of a handler, right? That's not who this God is. No, this God is the all-powerful, all-knowing maker of heaven and earth. Amen? That's who he is. As Abraham understood, he is the judge of all the earth. Genesis 18.25. And his judgments are always right, always true, and always just. And he knows human sin. And he knows how he will respond to human sin. It's already been established. It's been established clearly. He made this clear to Noah He made this clear to Abraham. He made this clear to Moses before he sent him to Pharaoh in the first place. This is what's happening. This is what will happen. This is what I'll do. He made it as as plain as day, didn't he? He knew exactly what was going to happen because of what had been happening and what he had planned to do. He made this all clear. In fact, the very captivity Moses sought to undo, the slavery of the Israelites, was foretold by God way back in Genesis 15 to Abraham. So it wasn't like the suffering of the Israelites was some surprise to God that he had to go, oh, oh no, plan B. I got to go to plan B. Oh, I have to go to plan C. Oh no, I have to go to plan D. What's happening here? This is not the God of Genesis and Exodus. This is not the God of the Old Testament. None of what has happened in terms of Israelite suffering or Israelite sin. Whether it be grumbling or graven images. None of it is a surprise to God. The same is true of his responses. They're not erratic. He's not just getting triggered and all of a sudden losing his cool. It's not what's happening. So what is God doing here with Moses then? Let me suggest that he's doing three things. That God has played out this situation or allowed it to play it out for three reasons. Number one, first, he's reminding Moses and the people that he is firmly and fiercely opposed to sin, and he will not ignore it, and he will not minimize it. They need to know that. He's not a hothead, but he's fiercely and passionately opposed to sin. Always. Number two, he wants it to be known both to these newly released slaves and to future generations, including us, That the people of God need a mediator. They need a mediator because of their sin. They need intercession. Third, I believe he wants them to have here preserved for all eternity, preserved for all history in this story, Exodus 32. He wants them to have a godly example of righteous, God-centered intercession. And it's that last point 
that I hope you will keep in mind as we look at the rest of this text. Why is that? Because I believe that God has called you to a ministry of intercession as well. I don't know if you believe that about yourself, but I believe that God has that for you and for me, a ministry of intercession. I believe this is true precisely for the three reasons I just gave you. I believe this is true for the three points I just listed out. Think about it. Number one, God is firmly and fiercely opposed to all sin, including yours, including mine. Number two, what did I say? In light of sin, we need a mediator and God has given us the ultimate mediator or intercessor. He did that when he gave us Jesus. Take a look at the screens. First Timothy chapter two, verse five expresses it this way. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There is one mediator. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, we all must go through that one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 7.25 explains this in light of the resurrection of Christ, makes the same point in light of the resurrection of Christ. Look what it says. Consequently, he is able, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost fully those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make what? Intercession for them. And so number three of our three points Applying our three points. If we belong to Christ, we have become mediators through his mediation. Intercessors because of his intercession. How can I say that? Well, as it says of the lamb in Revelation 5.10, take a look. You, O lamb, have made them a kingdom and you've made them priests to our God. That idea is repeated in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Also at the end of the book in chapter 20, verse 6. It's found again in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well. And guess what? It's simply an application or affirmation of what's found originally in Exodus 19, verse 6. The very design that God had for his people the whole time that they would be a kingdom and priest to God comes from Exodus 19 comes from the covenant with these people that the story we're looking at today and is fulfilled in the church. So if you belong to Christ, guess what? You are a priest. You are a priest of God. One of the great harms of the Roman Catholic Church is the elevation of a single man to the idea of priest, priesthood. The great travesty of the LDS, Latter-day Saint theology, is, is the weird application of priesthood only to certain people. And what both of these errant theological systems miss is that every blood-bought believer is sanctified as a priest unto God. That's you. That's me. We are all priests it is god's design it inspires worship and praise in the book of the revelation that the lamb has made us priests <laughs> isn't that awesome 
It's that stunning. It's that important. Believer, being a priest means being a mediator. Being a priest means being an intercessor for others. It's the very thing that God was looking for for his people in the Old Testament. It was one of the marks of a righteous person. It was a person who was a just man or woman. As God sought that just man or woman. That righteous man or woman. And yet there were times of great suffering. There were times of great famine in terms of righteousness and knowledge in the land. And these are the things that God would say. Listen, take a look on the screen. This is from Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah the prophet laments. It displeased God that there was no justice. Among his people, right? He saw that there was no man and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. No one stepping forward. No one's interceding on behalf of the people for one another. Another prophet lamented the same idea. Ezekiel put it this way. Take a look. And I sought for a man, says God. I sought for a man. Among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, for the sake of the land, on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. You see, if the people were healthy spiritually, there would be not just one, there would be many people who would be interceding who would be mediating before God and praying before God for the sake of the people. How is all of this connected to our main text? Well, Moses was exactly this kind of man. The man that God was looking for in the days of Isaiah, the man that God was looking for in the days of Ezekiel was the man who had already been highlighted to the people way back in Moses. Whenever, whenever this was mentioned, Moses had to be the example par excellence, right? The best example of this. We know this because look at Psalm 106 verses 19 through 23. Tell me if this situation sounds familiar. They made a calf, a golden calf at Horeb and they worshiped that metal image. <gasps> Wait a minute. This is, this is our story. This is Exodus 32. The psalmist is singing about it. They made a calf in Horeb and they worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham. And awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Look at that. Great things, wondrous works, awesome deeds. Every single one of you has that those three categories in your life in terms of your story. God has worked in your life in these ways. It's not a matter of whether he has. It's a matter of whether you recognize it or not and are giving him thanks for it and are letting your life be influenced and shaped by these wonderful works, these great things, these awesome deeds. They forgot their God. Therefore, he said he would destroy them 
had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him. That's the language of Ezekiel, isn't it? To stand in the breach, Moses stood in the breach before God to turn away his wrath from destroying them. The imagery here is clear, right? If it's not, here's what it means. The imagery is of a breach, a gap in a city's defensive wall, the enemy on the outside. And if the gap is not defended, the enemy will pour in, which will lead to certain destruction. Moses stood in that breach for sinners. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ stood in that breach for sinners. Amen? Are you thankful this morning that he did? He stood in the breach for you and for me. And because he did that, we also can stand in the breach through prayer. We can't stand in the breach through sacrifice, right? We don't stand in the breach through making atonement by our own blood, our own sacrifice, by the sweat of our brow. We don't do that. Christ has done that. If we're to stand in the breach, it will mean prayer. It will be intercession through prayer. And that's exactly what Moses is doing here as he entreats God in Exodus 32. Now notice, as we see here, right, let's use this as a a reference point that Moses is He is interceding for, he is mediating for those who have been redeemed. Haven't they? Redeemed from slavery? We can do the same. We can mediate and intercede for those, through prayer, for those who have been redeemed. But he's also interceding for who? For those who are under the wrath of God. Now, we know in Christ, we're no longer under the wrath of God. I'm not praying for you because you're under the wrath of God. Jesus has, dr- has he drank the cup of that wrath. He has satisfied that debt. He has paid that price. Even in the verse that we read that our brother Pete read to us. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. That's it. He sat down at the right hand of God. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see that goes from his death on the cross to his coming again. That's the period of time that we're living in now. And guess what? It's defined by a single offering that has perfected for all time those who are in the process of being sanctified. What a beautiful description of the Christian life, of the the two comings of Christ and this life that we live now. That's been done. So we're praying, when we're praying for those who are under God's wrath, we're praying for those outside of of the church. So this kind of points us in both directions. We can pray for those redeemed from slavery, our brothers and sisters. We can pray for those outside of the church. And as we're thinking about this, let's look finally at the entire passage, Exodus 32, 11 through 14. Listen to the whole passage. Moses, but Moses implored Yahweh, his God, and said, Oh, Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, uh, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Ha! Turn, says Moses, from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring. And they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord and Yahweh relented in light of Moses' intercession. He relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now notice what Moses is doing for us. He's modeling, not only is he pointing us to Christ like we just talked about, the one who stood in the breach, stood in the gap, right? But he's also modeling for us what it means to be an intercessor. He's helping us learn about what it means to be an intercessor, which we all have that ministry as believers through prayer. First of all, let's, let's look at some points here. Take a look. First of all, Moses is, what is Moses showing us here? He's showing us that we should intercede in light of one's saving relationship with God. As you pray, let this inspire you. So when Moses asked God why in verse 11, he wasn't ignoring what God had revealed to him about the golden calf. God, uh, Moses, or God said, Moses, this is what I'm doing. The people have done this. I'm going to consume them. So when he says, why are you, why does your wrath burn hot? It's not like, oh, why are you mad at your people? Like, what did they do? No, he already knows what they did. He's not asking that why because he doesn't know what they did. No, he's grounding his appeal here in the incredible deliverance God had just accomplished and the very people that God had redeemed. This was not just any people whom God intended to consume. As Moses expressed it to God in verse 11, these are your people. So he goes to God and says, God, these are your people. You redeem these people. And so when we, brothers and sisters, intercede in prayer for a particular believer and a particular need, let us also, let us always do so in light of the greatest need that God has already met in their life. What do I mean by that? Let's intercede in light of that individual's relationship to God. Here's what I mean. Father, Father, I am coming to you on behalf of blank. He or she is your son, is your daughter. You purchased them with the blood of Jesus. I want to acknowledge the stunning and incomparable work that you have already accomplished in his or her life. I want to appeal to you now in light of that work that you have already done in your grace. Friends, when God, God's saving work is exalted in our prayers, God is exalted. That's the reference point that we always need to come back to, to highlight God's saving work, to lift it up, to spotlight it. Because guess what? It sets the tone. It, it anchors us in who God is and his relationship, what he intends for that individual. It sets everything in right perspective. 
right? When you come and bring a need and you are grounding it in what God has already done. Uh, But the topic of one's saving relationship should also be prioritized when we intercede for those who lack that relationship. So if we're talking about in light of one saving relationship, it could be in light of one saving relationship or the lack thereof. Let that never leave your mind when you are interceding on behalf of someone. Because this is, this is our God, brothers and sisters. It's the God who, take a look, the God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4. That's the God we serve. He's not stingy. He's not a Scrooge-like God, right, who doesn't want to give salvation. He wants to pour out his salvation upon all those who will come. Repentance and faith. It's his desire. So yes, pray for others. If, if you're interceding on a particular need, pray for others. Pray for their physical health. Pray for their physical healing. But also and always pray for their ultimate spiritual healing through Jesus. Don't neglect that last part. Yes, pray for the employment maybe someone needs, a neighbor, a friend. But also and always pray that she would come to serve the true God and delight in His work. That His work would be most important to her. Yes, we pray for that neighbor or we pray for that coworker and their family problems, but also and always we pray for the even bigger problem that that individual is not yet part of God's family. That's more important than the family turmoil they're going through. Pray for both, but don't just pray for the first. Pray in light of one's saving relationship with God or lack thereof. So let us pray for those who are God's people in light of the work he's already begun in their lives. And let's pray for those who are not yet his people in light of the work that he delights to do in a soul. Amen. But Moses' prayer here in reference to salvation in verse 11, it leads to a related idea in verse 12. Take a look. Second, when we intercede, we should intercede with a genuine concern for God's glory. Moses is concerned for God's glory. He cares about his reputation. He cares about the fame of God's name. Where do we see that? We see that in verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Now, let's be clear here. God would be just in destroying a wayward people. If he did it, he would be just. We would not find fault with God. We could not find fault with God if he consumed all of these sinners. But Moses argues that God would be more greatly and widely glorified if this newly liberated people were able to serve him now in the freedom that he had accomplished, that he had purchased, not suffer the very wrath that they had avoided in Egypt. Moses is concerned about confusion instead of clarity regarding God's saving power and purposes. 
You see, no matter how it turns out, the beautiful thing is that Moses gets it. Right? Even if he's not exactly right spot on, he cares about the glory of God. He doesn't want God to be trash talked by anybody else. Right? He may not understand everything, but he wants, he, he's so wrapped. He says, God, you just did an awesome work. Please don't let it end here because of the people's sin. In the same way, brothers and sisters, we should intercede with that very heart. You may not like your boss at work, for example, but how are you praying? Don't sit there and say, ah, oh, God, please make my boss nicer. God, please make my boss more flexible. No, 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 no. Pray like this. Father, I pray that by grace through Jesus, you would have mercy on my supervisor, that you would spare him or her from the wrath to come through Jesus, that you would forgive him or her of their sins and that you would give him a new heart to love and serve you. And I pray this not only for his sake, but I pray this, that you would be glorified among my coworkers. That my coworkers would glorify you as they see grace empower change in his life. That they would honor you because she's different, because she knows you. You see, that's the prayer of a man or woman who's concerned with the glory of God. It's not just for the sake of the individual. It's the repercussions. It's the, it's the ripples in the pond when the stone of deliverance is cast into that water, right? The ripple effect. We're praying for that as well because we know God is worthy of every ripple of praise as it extends out and that those ripples will be seen and those ripples will hit the shore and change comes. Sub, additional change comes. Similarly, you can also intercede with this same mindset about the glory of God. You can intercede in terms of against a negative outcome. Here's an example. Lord God, I pray on behalf of my two sisters in Christ. I pray for reconciliation for them as they're at odds. I pray for unity to be restored between these sisters. Do this not only for their sake, but also for the encouragement of the body of Christ and that those on the outside would not see hostility between those who declare the incomparable love and peace of Jesus. That those on the outside would see lives that match up with the love and the forgiveness that we point to at the cross. That the glory of your gospel, Father, that your glory in the gospel would not be diminished among us. Now, I'm not just making that up. That's how, that's how the Bible writers pray, right? That's how Paul would warn against that about the testimony of the church. That's not, that's not, uh, minimizing the fact that that christians are going to struggle that's not calling them you absolutely have to be perfect or else it's simply when you struggle look to him when there's reconciliation that needs to take place pray for it to take place pastorally help it take place 
those who are hard-hearted right now understand that this is not just an issue about you. It starts with your heart. But guess what? You represent Christ. And sometimes that sobers someone to see the effect that they're having on someone else, maybe dragging others down in their faith. Maybe a testimony in the outside, somebody looking into the church and thinking, well, if this is how Christians are, I don't know if I want to be one. God uses those things to sober us, doesn't he? To get us thinking in new ways. That's how we're praying here. Let me mention one more principle in light of Moses' example. Third, we should intercede as those emboldened by God's promises. We should intercede as intercessors because of Christ's intercession as those emboldened by God's promises. Do you see where Moses went in verse 13? He went back to God's covenant promises. Moses reminds God here of the very promises God had reminded him about in the opening chapters of the book. God came to him through the burning bush. God reminded him who he was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Chapter 6, he says, I'm going to fulfill my promises to the people to multiply them as I have. I'm going to bring them to the land that I promised to give to their ancestors. Now God's reminding, now Moses is reminding God of the very things God had reminded him of. But let's be clear once again. If God had justly, rightly destroyed these sinners, that would not make him in any way unfaithful to his promises. How? Why? How can we say this? Because in verse 10, he tells Moses that he will start over with him. And Moses is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see? God will never be unfaithful to his promise. He may find a different way to accomplish it. And when he does so, he's right and he's good and just in his wisdom. But he's not going to be unfaithful. That can never be a charge laid against God. He wants to start over with Moses. He tells Moses, I'm starting over with you. But it's this alternate plan. It's, this is why Moses, because of this alternate plan, Moses is emphasizing the fact that God has already fulfilled his promise. To multiply Abraham's offspring as the stars of heaven. The opening chapter of the book of Exodus mentions explicitly that the people of Israel, the children of Israel, became so numerous they were like the sand on the seashore. You see, so Exodus is concerned about the fulfillment of God's promises. Moses is sensitive to this. He says, God, you've already accomplished this. Right? Start over with me. With me. What are you? You've already accomplished this. You've multiplied the people. You've, you've made them as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And God, you have delivered your people. And God, you are bringing these people to this land that you promised them. And Moses must recognize that everything is so close they're so close they're not that far away from the land it's maybe days or just weeks to get to the the land of promise therefore he grounds his intercession in those promises of god he is declaring the promises back to god and saying god remember oh god act see act for your glory brothers and sisters 
why would we do any less if we are also called to a ministry of intercession? Why would we do any less as those who belong to Christ? How could we not be emboldened by the fact that second Corinthians chapter one, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. All the promises of God. That's our inheritance, isn't it? That's our blessing, our privilege. Therefore, let us intercede for one another in light of God's covenant commitment to us in Christ. What does that sound like? Maybe like this. Father, restore my brother in this difficult time. He's struggling. Restore him now, Lord God, for you have promised that you will complete the good work that you began in him. Gracious God, reassure my sister in this extremely painful time, for you have promised that all things will work together for her good. What a beautiful prayer. Lord God, while our brother is away, we thank you that you will never leave him or forsake him, as your word says. Beautiful promise of God. Remind him of this as well. As my sister wrestles with regret, Father, help her to rest in the promise that every sin has been covered in Jesus Christ because he suffered once for all in regard to sin. You see, these are the truths of God's word. These are the absolutes. These are the promises in light of God's covenant. We need to rehearse them. We need to bring them back to God. We need to plead in light of them. And we can also intercede, though, for those outside of the covenant in light of God's promises, as we talked about. How do you pray for unbelievers in your life in light of these promises? Well, if God has opened the door of salvation to all people, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, if Christ has promised us, take a look, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, Matthew 28, 18, and that he is with us always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20, if he has assured us that a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages is standing before the throne and before the lamb, Revelation 7, 9, and that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. First Corinthians 15, 58, then you can plead those truths and those promises back to God as you step out in faith and intercede for the lost around you, those in your circle. I'm afraid to speak now, Father, but I I know what your word has said. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And I claim that now, that truth. And I know I'm not alone because he said he'll be with me. And I claim that now. I, I pray in light of that. I intercede in light of that, that he is with us as we go. Brothers and sisters, friends, consider what God has shown us here this morning. This picture, beautiful picture of intercession. Since he is not a God as we know, he's not a God who needs reminders, is he? We don't need to remind him. Because he's not a God who needs reminders. He must be pleased When we remember his words and his promises. That's the whole point of this. Moses is not reminding God of something he doesn't know. It's Moses who needs to remember. It's Moses who needs the opportunity to grow and learn. 
how to have the promises of God in his mouth. It's Moses who needs to set the example for the people of God, including us. We need this, not God. Since he's not a God who needs to be talked down off the ledge of his wrath, he must know that we need to learn how to intercede in light of his wrath. He is sensitizing us to these things. We're not doing it. It's not the other way around. Moses wasn't wrangling God here. No, God was teaching Moses. God was shaping Moses. And this morning, he is teaching. He is shaping us through Moses. Having someone step up and step into a situation in order to intercede for you is a wonderful thing. It is. It's a beautiful thing. Now, if we keep Jesus' words in mind about it being more blessed to give than to receive, then even more wonderful is being that kind of person on behalf of another. Being an intercessor. So why not make 2023 a year of intercession? Right? Why not make it a year of unparalleled intercession in your life? Grab this bull by the horns. Take up the call. Talk about a wonderful way to bless other people to be used by God in the lives of others. No, no, I don't think God is simply challenging us to do something. He is doing that. I believe ultimately he's calling us to be who he's called us to be. That is, he wants the heart of Jesus to beat in us. That's what he wants for your life. As Jesus has stood and stands for us, even now we can stand for others through intercession, through prayer. We can do that with love and gratitude and a heart of worship in light of his mediation. We can serve others in his name through mediating prayer. You can do that. You see, that's gospel informed prayer. That's gospel inspired intercession. And isn't intercession both love for God, the greatest commandment and love for neighbor, the second commandments? As Jesus taught us, we come and glorify the only one who can help on behalf of those who need the help. You see, intercession is a fulfillment of these great commandments in your life. So why not make this year a year of intercession? Just as God did here with Moses, I believe God has given us and is giving us and will give us opportunities to step up and step into the breach. Think about it, please. How might God want to grow you this year in your priestly work? You may not even, you may have never even once thought about yourself in that way and said, oh yeah, all the time and thought I've given to my priestly work. Maybe it's not been anything in your life, but now it is. God has planted that truth in you. How does he want to grow you in that priestly work, brother, sister? Who in your life is in desperate need of intercession? Whether a fellow believer 
or individuals who are without Christ. Would you take a few minutes now to talk with him about these things? Ask him about where this year is going, how you can be used by God right, in a wonderful way to be a blessing as you have been blessed. Ask him to turn your eyes, turn your heart back to the intercession of Christ who always lives even now standing at the right hand of God to make intercession for us. For us. And if you're here this morning and you recognize that you're the one who needs an intercessor before God, that you recognize that you're not different, maybe for the first time you're coming to realize that you're not different from these Israelites and their twisted worship. The God who blessed them, they've turned into a golden cow. Maybe you do the same thing. Romans 1 says we exchange the glory of God as well. And we worship things of the earth. We worship ourselves. If you realize that, that you need Christ's intercession this morning, then reach out in faith and trust that God has provided for you wonderfully the perfect mediator in Jesus. Reach out to Him this morning if you haven't done so already. Only He can turn God's judgment away from you and only in Him can we find such mercy. So let's go to Him now in prayer for a minute. Go to Him now with faith and gratitude and worship in light of these things.